I use the uh, NRSV. That's the version I use, which Genesis 4.1 opens with, Now the man knew his wife Eve, and didn't know until this morning that, or had forgotten that we used the NIV, which, Miles, you handled that with a plum. Yeah, 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 that's good. He even suggested he's thinking about doing a hard pause after, Now Adam made love to Eve. Uh, is it just me, uh, or does the world uh, feel like a dumpster fire right now? Uh, I've been somewhat intrigued by all of the stories that are coming out of the national parks, and image after image of the garbage that's piling up and piling up. Uh, along with all of the other uh, garbage slash crap that's coming along with the shutdown, 800,000 people uh, who aren't receiving checks. I, I see these images and think it's a fairly apt um, metaphor for how things often feel. And it reminds me not just of, of, of the situation, um, but it makes me wonder about the people who continue to leave trash there. Like, they know no one's going to pick it up. Why don't they just take it home? spoke recently with a colleague who said there is not a day that goes by uh, that she doesn't hit some sort of road bump um, or barrier or something in her work um, that reminds her that she's a female uh, and that she's black. Uh, had some time with a best friend on Friday uh, who talked about his wife, who's recently spent time down at the border, uh, being a witness to all that's happening there. And then another sex scandal comes out in one way or another. And I sit with um, ministers and preachers and pastors of predominantly black churches and they talk about their experience in much different ways um, than I know and experience. And I wonder, like, can it get any worse? Just kind of feels like a dumpster fire, doesn't it? And just when I wonder if it can get any worse, a man raises his hand. The man whose life we're going to celebrate a week from tomorrow, Martin Luther King Jr. And he says, I, I could tell you of a time when it was worse. And we think of the civil rights activists. And we think of the dogs and the fire hoses and the lynchings and the killings. And then another person raises their hand and they are the granddaughter of someone who was killed in the Holocaust. And we think of the six million Jews who lost their lives under Nazi Germany. And I hear my grandfather, who has very stark memories of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. And we can go back through our history and quite frankly find one dumpster fire after another. The kidnapping, enslavement, subjugation of entire people in American slavery. Go back even a little bit further and we see an entire people group and Native Americans brothers and sisters that we dislocated and nearly demolished. 
Go back even further and you keep finding things. Death, destruction, violence. The Black Plague killed anywhere between 75 and 200 million people in the 14th century. And I wonder, if we just go back far enough, if we go back to the beginning, surely we'll find a place of justice, a place of wholeness, a place of flourishing, right? If we just go back to our earliest sacred texts, there we're going to find stories of people who cared for one another and who were kind and who were compassionate. And then we read Genesis chapter 4. After the first few words... Uh, it goes downhill. The story of Cain and Abel. One who works the ground and the other who works with sheep. They both bring sacrifices and God prefers one over the other. And Cain is angry and he is jealous and he kills his brother. And he is then cursed to be a wanderer, a fugitive. No longer will his efforts with the soil be fruitful, but rather a mark is placed on his head and he leaves the presence of the Lord. But it's not as if Cain and Abel are outliers. We can just look at their parents. Adam and Eve. As soon as the creation story is over, the wheels fall off. We have that rather infamous fruit debacle. (laughs) Adam and Eve grab for power and knowledge, and wisdom, and with it they find shame, and a curse from God, both for male and female. And what happens after Cain and Abel? That's when you read about the wickedness that befalls all of humanity, save one family, Noah. And so God does that ultimate control-alt-delete move, (laughs) sends a great flood, And everyone, men, women, children, beasts, are gone. Save for Noah, his family, and those animals that won the lottery and got to walk onto the boat. And sure, eventually the water recedes. They step out on dry land, and God makes this covenant. But but do you know what the next story is? It's the story of the Tower of Babel. All the people of earth spoke the same language and they gathered in the land of Shinar and began to build a tower of brick and mortar, the text says, to make a name for themselves. And God sees it and says, nope, it's not going to happen. Confuses their language, sends them to the corners of the earth. Now in between all these stories, you find some really fascinating genealogies. Great reads, let me tell you. And hundreds of years go by in some cases. But it is telling that as people are trying to make sense of their own history, as people are trying to make sense of who they are and where they come from and how they understand the relationship with God, the stories that the Hebrew people told and retold, collected and recorded, go loosely something like this. Creation happens, dumpster fire of the fall. Long genealogy, dumpster fire of Cain and Abel. Long genealogy, dumpster fire of Noah and the ark. 
long genealogy, dumpster fire, Tower of Babel. So it seems, I've never used the word dumpster fire so many times in my life. (laughs) Side note. It seems, as I look at what feels like a dumpster fire happening around me, um, is not simply situational. It's not simply located with us here today as some unique experience that the world has never seen before. Uh, It seems it's existential. It's a part of life. It's consistent with the human experience all the way back to our stories of origin. And on the one hand, uh, for me, there's a bit of uh, consolation in this. It's a bit of comfort knowing that we're not alone. We're not the first to experience this kind of madness, this kind of violence that we both perpetuate and that we receive, never asking or deserving. But on the other hand, it can feel a bit defeating, can it? Will things ever get better? If this cycle of violence and brokenness and sin is a part of, is a part of how humanity orders things, what hope is there? that the cycle will ever be broken. If you uh, walk into uh, the church building on Military Road South in Federal Way, Washington, you're likely to be greeted by a woman named Marlene and her husband, Joe. Uh, Marlene and Joe are in their late 70s, although you would never know it. They look a lot younger. And they are the epitome of kindness and welcome and hospitality. Uh, they're the kind of people that when they say, hello, how are you doing, they actually mean it. The kind of people I look up to, because that's hard for me to do sometimes. And Marlene is remarkable. She has this um, unrelenting hope for humanity. Uh, She has this remarkable pursuit that things can be better in this world. And it's hard for me to really understand, given the experience they've had with their youngest son. I don't know how long he struggled with addiction, uh, but it's too long to count. Meth and heroin are his drugs of choice. He's been homeless for um, at least the last 15 years and on and off for the 20 years before that. He lives with Joe and Marlene for a season, steals something, Sells it, disappears, pops back up on the radar, stays with Joe and Marlene for a little bit longer, steals something, disappears. And they will go weeks, if not months, close to a year at times, not hearing from them. And for almost 15 years now, every week, Marlene gets in her car She drives to the east hill of Kent, which is this large, unused, unkept woodland area filled with hundreds and hundreds of homeless. And it's a place that cops won't go in alone. They always go in pairs. And there are signs saying, enter at your own risk. But there's Marlene, a woman in her 70s, going by herself. Uh, Because moms looking for their kids don't pay attention to those kind of warnings. 
And she walks through the woods and goes to tent after tent after tent looking for her boy, hoping to bring him his social security check or a little bit of food or more, or more minutes on his phone. Sometimes she finds him, many times she does not. He suffered for uh, many years with a bad infection in his leg that immobilized them, bound to a wheelchair. And on one occasion, while she's on the East Hill in Kent, she finds him, and he needs medication, and so he agrees to let her take him to the store. So she wheels him out of the woods and puts him in the car, and she spoke about how angry he was. And he fumed and he vented this unrelenting hatred at his mom for all that she had done. And they get to the store, and she's wheeling him across the parking lot, and he is kicking, and he's screaming, and he's cursing at Marlene for all the things that she's done wrong. And he doesn't want her to go in the store with her, with him, and so he makes her stay outside. So she stands at the door of this grocery store while he goes into the pharmacy, and she waits, and she waits, and she waits, and he doesn't come out. So she finally goes in, nowhere to be seen. Asked the pharmacist, and the pharmacist, he, well, he went towards the back of the store. So she walks to the back of the store and finds a grocery clerk who said, oh, yeah, man, we'll ch- yeah, he went out this back exit. So Marlon goes out, and he is gone. How in a wheelchair he disappeared so quickly, she doesn't know, but he's gone. She goes back to her car, and she weeps. And then a few days pass. She gets in her car, and she drives to East Hill, Kent, East Hill of Kent, and goes through the woods again on search for a boy. In search for a boy. And I think of Marlene, and all of the brokenness that's there. The violence, both that she receives, and the violence that her son brings on herself. And I think of Cain and Abel and the curse of the ground and the wickedness of creation before the flood. I think of children separated from their parents at the border and sexism and racism and classism and all the violence that we perpetuate and all the violence that we at times receive without any reason or cause And it can all feel a bit overwhelming, can't it? So, with that set up, which is super cheery, I'm realizing now. um, I'm curious, how do you make sense of it? How do you understand um, what seems to be true from the very beginning of time, and that is this pervasive brokenness um, right when we think we have it figured out, it just all goes down the drain again. How do you make sense of it? That's a question. <laughs> yes, that's a question. Man, mm-hmm. that sin 
prevail. You know, sin is in the world, but sin won't prevail. But sin is in the world. And as much as in God he created with love and he created with all the intention of beauty and peace, humanity is broken. And and I think as as we look at these type of ailments, we still have to see that our God is beautiful and peaceful and yeah. gracious, but humanity is broken. And that is the point of our Christ. That is what redemption is all about. Is the savior of the world has come because humanity is broken. Yeah, I'll take you back a little bit. I'd like to quote my favorite theologian, Odd Thomas, from the Hebrews. He talks about, he says, you know why there's poison plants, why there's predators, why there's earthquakes and tsunamis? It's because when we try to reach for the ultimate power, when we tried to call good and evil ourselves, we broke. And we broke the whole shebang. And the deal was that somehow we were supposed to fix it. Mm-hmm. And in that scene, he starts crying, and his friend says, well, maybe we can fix it. He says, no, we can't. Mm-hmm. A broken thing can't fix itself. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it for me. That's well said. Yeah, Jennifer. So, yeah. I don't find you to do that. The yeah. only thing I find is that I can walk into it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, most of us live in a place of privilege where if we don't want to face any of that or engage any of it, we don't have to. Like, I can turn off the news. I can, you know, go back to my safe house. Like, I don't have to engage in all that. And I think part of the way that I don't think it's necessarily making sense of it, but that we come to see it mm-hmm. and and you know, it is to enter into you know, yeah. to think we have to we have to somehow step into it and be be more involved in it. Yeah. That's great. I think about all the times that um, <coughs> I get so overwhelmed and tired of the news and so I just turn it off. I'm like, enough. And then I'm immediately confronted with what a luxury that is. Mm-hmm. That there's people who are so deeply enmeshed in all of the brokenness that they can't turn it off like it's a, a, a TV or a radio or a Facebook feed. Any other thoughts? I was just thinking, on the other hand, I can't avoid it because the brokenness is in me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, uh, and it's not particularly uh, uh, sensible or explicable within me. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's unsettling. Yeah. So we're in this sermon series titled The Story of God. And last week, Charles talked about the story of God in creation. And this week, I was given um, Genesis 3 through 11 and assigned the title The Story of God in Crisis, which I'm retitling God in a Dumpster Fire. <laughs> Because it's easy, I think, um, to do what I've done this morning, uh, and that is to focus on the mess that is humanity. And I don't think doing such a thing is entirely wrong. Because we find uh, people who are violent and exploitive and selfish and power hungry, unable to live in peace with one another, and not considering the others that are flourishing, the brokenness of humanity in Genesis 3 through 11 in our own world, in our own lives, is fairly clear. 
But if we just do this, we miss the point, I think. Because this is fundamentally not a story about humanity. It is fundamentally a story about God. It is a story about a God who returns to creation over and over and over and over again and says, okay, let's try this one more time. It is a God who longs more than anything for all of creation to flourish, not suffer. It is a God who does not run away from the suffering or the pain or the brokenness or the crisis or the mess of humanity, but a God whose very existence and very presence is found smack dab in the middle of it all, going to the darkest of corners and the most painful of situations. This, I think, is the good news. That God, like a mother in search of her beloved child, is willing to go to the most remote and dangerous and darkest corners of the world in search of this creation that God loves, saying to beloved daughters and beloved sons, you are seen, you are not forgotten. This is the good news. That although creation is hobbled and broken and violent and destructive, although we kick and scream and curse towards God, like a mother in pursuit of her child, God pushes all of creation towards that which is good. And even if and when we duck out the back door, running out to the wilderness, God says, okay, let's try this one more time. You are not getting rid of me. This is the hope. That even if our story is one dumpster fire after another, God says, you're not getting rid of me. Let's try it again. And this is not only our hope, this is the invitation. For if the church should be anywhere, it is the very places that God is. And if God is willing to go to the darkest, most broken corners of the world, that's where we go. If God is willing to endure over and over and over again, the pain and brokenness and disappointment of this creation, so are we. And we do it because of two things. God is there, and we will not be alone. But we always enter into a time of prayer, uh, and I want to invite us this morning uh, as we pray our mission prayers. Um, where we share stories and pray about um, our participation in God's mission uh, as missional communities and as disciples of Jesus. Um, we think of this in sort of two ways, breakthroughs and battles. What's a breakthrough that we've been experiencing this week? Um, and what's a battle uh, that we're experiencing? And I wonder if we can't allow Genesis 3 through 11 to frame our missional prayer time together. But perhaps there is a place of deep brokenness that you see in life or in the world, uh, and you really have no idea how in the world either God is present in it or how in the world God's going to break through. Or maybe um, this week you've experienced a breakthrough, a moment of hope and redemption and joy in the midst of the brokenness. 
So I'm going to say a prayer, and then um, whoever would like to come up to the mic uh, and join us in prayer. Let's pray. For the very beginning, God, we have um, sought to tell a story uh, that is honest and that is true. And we can't tell our story, God, without um, articulating the ways in which we have uh, fallen short, ways in which violence and brokenness and fragmentation continue to find their way into this world. But it would also be disingenuous, it would be dishonest, God, if we didn't uh, confess um, a deep hope and belief that you are here. That you do not leave us uh, when things um, are too unbearable or overwhelming. And that there is no corner of this world uh, to which you will not go. And so we lift up, God, all of the ways uh, in which we experience battles in this world of violence. And we lift up to you all of the breakthroughs of hope and your presence and redemption that we also experience.